Would you bow in prayer with me? Father, we don't deserve to be here. We don't deserve any of the grace that you shower upon us any given day. We're grateful that we have an opportunity to worship you and to be together as your people in honor of your name and in worship of you. And so we pray that you would attend to our time, that we would hear your words that we would understand Your words by the illuminating power of Your Spirit, and that we would take heart to these things, that Your church would be all that it is meant to be, and that Your name would be glorified in every way that You deserve. So thank You for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's a great time to be together. It's our time to study the Word of God as His people. And we have, of course, just finished our series in the book of Jude concerning the need for us as Christians to contend for the faith. Jude says that in verse 3, that he wanted to write concerning our common salvation, but he found it more necessary to write to us to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And as in our study, we were exhorted, therefore, then to engage in the ongoing and constant battle for the truth. Why? Because it is so dangerous to the church. It is so dangerous for the church to not know the truth. And as we look around in our world and at evangelicalism at large around the globe in our own day, maybe because of our own ignorance to the issues, or maybe just by our own naivete about Christendom in the larger sphere of the world around us, we might be wondering, in light of our study of Jude, what happens when apostasy is embraced by the church? We heard a lot about apostasy in our study of Jude, and now we might be wondering, okay, so what happens to a church when apostasy is embraced? Well, a few years ago, we spent some time actually looking at that from the book of Revelation. And so for the next few weeks, I want us to return where we have been in the past and be reminded once again of Christ's warning to the church. Because it is a warning in light of the issues of apostasy. And this morning, we're going to focus our attention on just verses 12 through 17 of chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Notice what Jesus Christ says through the Apostle John to the church in Pergamum. Beginning in verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, To the one or the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the midst of Antipas, or in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there some who hold 
the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit immorality. And thus, you also have some in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. And we are reminded that Revelation is focused primarily on the full disclosure of Jesus Christ. That's why it's called the Revelation in the end at the, at the book. This is the apocalypse, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is the main point of everything throughout the entire book of Revelation. It is to show Jesus Christ for who He really is. Jesus Christ is seen in His full glory that He had before the world had ever been created by Him. And so this is Jesus Christ, our ruler over all things. This is Jesus Christ as Lord of Lords and King of Kings in action. This is Jesus Christ like we have never seen Him before. The, and the Apostle John has been divinely commissioned by God through the circumstances of his exile to the island of Patmos to write all that God is uncovering for him to see. And if we were to go back and just begin where Revelation begins in chapter 1, we would quickly notice that he has written about the things that he has seen. That's what chapter 1 is all about. The things of the past, which include the vision of Christ and the glories of heaven, the position of Christ in his role as priest and judge of the world, and he is standing in the midst of the universal church all who have ever believed of all time. And He is in His full authority. He is in His undiminished purity. And His right to judge is very clear. And so John writes about all of that in chapter 1. And since Christ is in the midst of the church, the universal believers of all time, John is writing now about the things that are. And so in chapters 2 and 3, we find seven separate letters to the church. These are letters to, to seven real, seven geographically located, seven historically uh Historical churches, those that were addressing several problems within the church as a whole, all of Christendom. And so these are not just problems within these specific churches, but these are current and potential problems within the church at large, within the universal church, within evangelicalism, within the local bodies as they exist even now throughout the world throughout the church in all of history. 
So this is Christ in the midst of the church. This is Christ evaluating us. This is Christ evaluating the local church at large, and He is examining them about spiritual issues that plague the local church. In other words, these are letters specifically to these seven local churches, and yet they are letters to every local church that has ever existed. These are letters to the true church. And we know this because at the end of each of these letters, we find these words, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You find that in chapter 2, verse 7. You find it in verse 11. You find it in verse 17 of chapter 2. You find it in verse 29 of chapter 2. You find it in chapter 3, verse 6. Chapter 3, verse 13. And chapter 3, verse 22. The same thing is said over and over and over again. And so that is simply to say that the content of all of these letters is for all of us. Now I've entitled this series of messages when the church embraces apostasy. When the church embraces apostasy. That is the danger that we face today. It is a danger that has been around since the church began. It is not new. There is nothing new under the sun, but it is what we face today, and it has affected numerous churches throughout all of history, to say the least, of churches today. And while there are seven churches here in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 that are being addressed, not all of them were affected by apostasy. For example, if you just turn back a little bit to the beginning of chapter 2, the church at Ephesus was a doctrinally accurate church. We could say one of the effects on, of apostasy in the church is the erosion of doctrinal purity or, or doctrinal precision. And yet here is Ephesus, they were not doctrinally uh, affected by any of that. They were a doctrinally accurate church. They were a church where evil was not tolerated. We'll see next Lord's Day the church of Thyatira and the whole effect of apostasy being borne out in this idea of tolerance. The church in Ephesus was not affected by this evil. They They did not tolerate evil, but they had neglected some principle of grave importance. They had allowed all of their Christian activity, all that they did for Christ, all that they were doing as Christians by way of their actions to devolve into duty that merely looked like devotion to Christ. In other words, they were busy They were busy as Christians in all kinds of things that might have been called and claimed Christianity by others, but it was not devotion. Their duty was going about without devotion to Christ. In other words, the heart of devotion that had driven their Christian duty at first, when they had first gotten saved, when they first knew Jesus Christ by faith in Christ had become over time just road activity. It had grown cold. 
So it was a cold-hearted, loveless Christian duty rather than Christian activity that was driven by devotion to Christ. And so Ephesus wasn't acutely, in one sense, uh, affected by rank apostasy, but the church was cold with loveless duty. And then you notice in verse 8 of chapter 2, you have another church, the church at Smyrna. Smyrna was the faithful church. Smyrna was the church that Christ spoke no words of condemnation to. He had nothing bad to say about this church. Smyrna was being faithful in the worst of times. They were being faithful in the worst of conditions. And so Smyrna is the example to us of how we are to respond and act toward the world when it even hates us because of Christ. We are to continue to be faithful to the end. And possibly even at the end of this series, we'll go back to Smyrna just to be reminded how we are to be at all times. Now, what I want us to begin to look at this morning then is this third church, the church in Pergamum. The church in Pergamum. Now, we already read these verses for us, and I just want to kind of give us a little bit of background about Pergamum to set the stage as to how apostasy can so easily affect the church. Pergamum was a city about 50 miles north of Smyrna. It was a university city. It was a city known for its intellect. It was an intellectually driven place. People were highly educated in the city of Pergamum. And there were three primary philosophies that were born out of all this intellectualism that made Pergamum what it was. And those three philosophies, I think, give us a backdrop upon which this apostasy and how apostasy can affect a church. Number one, it had an undergirding philosophy of imperialism imperialism. You say, what is imperialism? Well, history tells us that Pergamum came to be known as the capital of Asia. In 133 BC, King Attalus III gave his kingdom over to the Romans in exchange for military help against the Syrians. And in doing that, Pergamum became then the center for the whole region of the area, and the primary rule of the day was allegiance to Rome. You had to pay your allegiance to Rome, and that was described by this phrase, the rule of the sword. The rule of the sword. That was the the phrase that, that set it all in Pergamum. The rule of the sword simply meant that the chief judge at any time could pass judgment down upon someone. They could even give the death penalty to anyone without any recourse from any other higher judge. Think of that. Judge in the land could just say, you're going to die today. No one else could say anything. No other judge could make another comment. There was no supreme, supreme judge. That whole idea was called the right of the sword. And so Pergamum was filled with this philosophy that Rome was to be given the highest allegiance. Give your highest allegiance to the government. That's the idea. Imperialism. Full allegiance to the ruling governing authorities. 
The second philosophy that ruled the day in Pergamum was intellectualism. You can only imagine that because it was an educational hub, right? It was like Ephesus and Smyrna in many ways. Pergamum was filled with the worship of of Greek gods. And because it was a university city, the Greek god most worshipped in Pergamum was the god uh, Asclepius. Asclepius. In Greek culture, apparently Asclepius was known as the god of medicine. Now, I'm not a uh, a real a person who's done a lot of research into the whole Greek god kind of idea. I didn't do a whole lot of reading on that when I was in school. When I went through school, there wasn't a whole lot of requirement on that. But Asclepius was apparently the god of medicine or the god of healing. And he was, he was given actually the title Savior by those who worshipped him. And guess what his symbol was? The symbol for the Greek god Asclepius, or the god of healing, was the same symbol we use for medicine today. A snake on a pole, which kind of harkens back to even the days when Israel was in the desert and the serpents were biting them, and if they just believed what that the, the ridiculousness of a snake on the pole, which is really, in a sense, how ridiculous it is that man says for us to believe upon Jesus Christ who hung on a tree. And according to the historical record, Asclepius was worshipped through the feeding of snakes that were kept in the temple. Ooh, nice place. Right? If you were to be healed... If you were someone who lived back then and you desired to be healed, along with other superstitious beliefs that you would hold to, you would go to the temple and you would sleep on the floor. And if the snakes touched you in any kind of way, then that meant that Asclepius was helping to heal you. How many of you would want to be healed? And so, associated with the worship of this Greek god was the medical school the medical school that attracted students from all over the region in order to learn medicine. So not only was Pergamum known as the city of the sword, it was also known as the city of the snake. The city of the snake. I wonder, and we could wonder if that's why even the Lord here in His words to them uh, talks about the place where Satan dwells, the great serpent. It was imperialistic. It was intellectually proud. And then third, the third philosophy was this philosophy of religious liberalism. Religious liberalism, or you might even use the term we hear today, ecumenism. It was very ecumenical. You say, how so? Well, the Roman Empire was tolerant of religion in general, as we know, it even tolerated the Jews as long as it didn't subvert their, their rule, their regime. But in Pergamum, they demanded a unifying of religious principle. What did that mean? Well, under the religious liberalism of the day, Caesar became the god to be worshipped. And so the first temple of Augustus Caesar was built in Pergamum. Caesar worship was religiously ecumenical. You say, how so? Well, 
what does ecumenical mean? It, it just means universal, or it means mixed, really, is the best way to do it. Pertaining to the whole of, of religion going after one thing, a universal religion of thought throughout the world. That's the idea. And it became a movement, really, even in the West in the 1800s, when Protestant groups in the 1800s begin to work together as an aim to achieve some kind of universal Christian unity and church union through interdenominationalism. So ecumenism has been around for a long time, and I think the most descriptive definition is just the simple word mix. To mix things together. In other words, containing a mixture of, of all of these different elements uh, so that you, you have this one collective unifying drive. And you see that even in our day and age through many, many different kinds of false religions coming together under the guise of the good of man or some other idea like that. And certainly we would say we want to do well to men. We want to do good to our fellow man, but we certainly don't want to do it at the cost of truth, as we will see. So in Pergamum, Caesar worship was the driving force. This commonality behind worshiping this one God, and it crossed all religious boundaries. It brought all of the religions under this one liberal roof, this one idea. And it was the worship of this common God in Pergamum named Caesar, false God. And in Pergamum, it was an intense driving force that really permeated everything. So this was, then if you, if you had titles, it was the, the city of the sword or the city of the rule of the sword. It was the city of the snake and it was the city of the common God, Caesar. And so it's against that backdrop that Christ evaluates the church at Pergamum. This is where they were. This is the kind of area in which they lived. So in this city, there was this true church. And while the city might be defined by imperialism, intellectualism, and liberalism, Christ wants the Christians, the true Christians, to to know that the only sword that matters is His. Notice verse 12, the second part. The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, In other words, there's nothing more important. If you're going to listen, you need to listen to nothing else. You must listen to this. There's nothing more sharp. There's nothing that can and nothing that will bring judgment more quickly and more accurately than the Word of God. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write this, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. We know Hebrews 4.12 says that the Word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword. It pierces down to the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God is the very thing that brings quick judgment. The truth, once for all delivered to the saints, as Jude said. This is the sword that is wielded, by the way, from the mouth of Jesus Christ. This is why I read from John chapter 5 this morning, because... Even the Pharisees were believing that the Word of God, that the very book itself, that the pages of of the Old Testament even were the things that saved them. And Jesus said, it is in them that speaks of me. 
these believers in Pergamum may be under the misapplied judicial sword of a corrupt system of law. They may be under the philosophical liberalism of the ecumenical society in which they are. They may be bombarded by the constant philosophies of intellectualism that men drum up through their own educations, but there is a law that is greater than any law of men. And it is the one they ought to fear. It's the Word of God. What they ought to fear is the truth. By the way, notice verse 16. He says, Repent therefore, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them. How? With the sword of my mouth. With the sword of my mouth. Interestingly enough, if you go to the end of Revelation, chapter 19 and verse 15, the coming of Christ, He has come, and it says in verse 15, and from His mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it He may smite the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron, and He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Over in verse 21 of that same chapter, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from His mouth of Him who sat upon the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Talking of Jesus Christ. And what a blessing it is for us to know that the only authority that matters, especially in our day and age, when we hear so much nonsense happening throughout the airwaves and through other avenues, that the only authority that matters, the only one that will bring proper judgment upon all men, and no one will ever escape, is the sword that comes from the mouth of Christ. It is His Word that absolutely judges, and it judges absolutely. Now notice that Christ begins in chapter 2 with all of the churches almost in the same way. He begins with a commendation. With a commendation. In other words, these are things that these churches are doing well, and He does that with Pergamum. The effect of the worldly system of apostasy and the apostate philosophies hasn't corrupted everything. Notice verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. It's not sugar-coated at all as we look at this. Pergamum was not a fun place to live. They lived in a very difficult place, and yet they are commended here for not denying Christ. What a commendation, right? What, what, what a blessing from God. Here were people, here were people in the midst of a, of a very severe place to even have a Christian testimony and witness, and they are commended by God for not denying Him. Not everything is lost. Praise God to that, that we're not just reading this and it's saying, yes, and here you are, and you gave into all these things, and in the end, you're just a destroyed place. No, they're still holding to the name of Christ. 
And notice that Christ identifies them as the place where Satan dwells. Right? This is the place where Satan dwells, where Satan's throne is. In other words, Christ is saying to them, I fully know where you live. This is not a surprise. I am still sovereign. There's nothing out of control. I know exactly what's going on. I know everything about it. I know where you live. And it's not just a place where Satan exists, where his minions are taking about things. No, you are in the place where he exercises great power and great authority. This is where his throne is. In other words, he is ruling. We know from Ephesians chapter 2 in the New Testament that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. We know that he is not omnipresent. In other words, he is not like God. He cannot be everywhere at one place, and he cannot know everything that is to be known at all times at once. We know that God has given him freedom God has given him a bounded freedom, if you will, to spin whatever lies and whatever systems according to his own wickedness in the sinful realm in which he dwells, which is here on this earth. So why why does John write it like this? Why is it stated like this here? And I believe it's stated like that here because this is the reality. Every false philosophy and every false doctrine and every false religion born from every false philosophy and every false doctrine is a product of Satan's rule. James says it clearly. If it is wisdom from the world, it is demonic. In other words, anything that is not wisdom from above is not from God. If it's from above, then it's from God. If it is not from above, then it is from the world and it is demonic. So let's not be confused. Satan loves, beloved, to be worshipped. Satan loves to be worshipped. In fact, when Satan fell from the glories of heaven, it was because he lifted himself up with his desire to be like God. You can read about Isaiah chapter 14. He desired to be like God. And in Matthew 4, he came to Jesus Christ after Jesus Christ was beginning to start his ministry. And he he went out into the desert and, and he tempted Jesus Christ and he tempted him to worship him. Matthew Chapter 4, verse 8, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. That's Satan's desire. Satan's desire is to steal. Satan's desire is to usurp what is rightfully God's. To take the glory that only God deserves and place it upon himself. And so Christ is referring here to a humanistic worship of anything other than him. That's what he means when he talks about Satan's throne. That is the worship of anything that's other than God. I know where you dwell. You dwell where anything other than me is worship. In other words, it was in Pergamum that this ecumenical worship was most promoted and it was most prevalent. In fact, history tells us that there were three temples to Caesar in Pergamum. Thriving place. This was a false religion. It was the worship of anything other than the saving God. 
It was actually the worship of Satan. If you're not worshiping God, you are actually, whether you believe in God or believe in Satan himself, you are still actually worshiping Satan himself if it is not worship of God. Because Satan is the father of every false religion, including the the religion of self-worship. And apparently in Pergamum, these things had become so heated against Christians who wouldn't worship among the ecumenical philosophies of Caesar worship that one day one of their own, Antipas, the witness of God, a faithful one, was martyred, martyred in that very place. His faithfulness to Christ and his protest against Caesar worship by worshiping Christ and Christ alone got him the sentence of death by the false religion with the full support, by the way, of the government justice system of the day. And yet, under that type of condition, they were holding fast to Christ. They weren't denying Him. We see that going on today. We have pastors in the country just north of us in Canada who are this very day in jail because they preach Jesus Christ. They're being held under court systems and going against the court systems or being judged by the court systems because they would not follow some man-made philosophy for how they should worship. Who knows what the outcome will be? Who knows what God will allow? Here, Antipas was murdered. Listen, this would be like someone coming up to you and saying, listen, with a gun in their hand, you deny Christ or you die right now. Sacrifice this of your life or you cannot do A, B, C, or D. If you don't do this, you cannot move freely around in your existence. Here's a church. What a commendation. It's a dangerous time. And so their loyalty to Christ was not some kind of academic duty. They stood for Christ in the midst of crisis, even when those around them were dying for their faith. Let's not forget, beloved, that true salvation, true believers, true salvation always produces faithful people. Why? Because just like Jude said at the end of Jude, it isn't us who's keeping ourselves saved, it's God who's holding us fast. True salvation produces faithful people. However, even in the best of churches, even in churches who are holding fast the line, there can be effects from apostasy. And so from the commendation to this church, Christ now lays out the problem. Here's the problem, verses 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. And thus you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So here you are, you have this church that apparently is faithful in the midst of 
a very dangerous time. They're in the midst of this trouble, and in the midst of the faithful are those who are unfaithful. What is an effect of apostasy? Here it is. It is compromise of the truth. One of the effects of apostasy is compromise of the truth. Some were holding to the doctrine of Balaam. Now, you remember, hopefully from our study of Jude, all about that. Balaam was a prophet of Israel. You can read all about him if you go back to Numbers chapter 22 through 24. And the way of Balaam was to compromise the truth and to compromise your very gift of God, right? Balaam was a prophet, so Balaam was compromising his even prophetic gift for a price. It was compromised for a price. The price for us might not be money. It might be. It might be some monetary holdout. The price for compromise for us might be physical gain. Listen, if you compromise your your testimony for Jesus Christ, you won't get ridiculed. You won't get ostracized. You won't get put down. You won't have some of these kinds of things happen to you. If you don't go along with the system, you'll be able to keep your job. It might be reputation. It might be some other form of value to us. But the lure is always the same. It's the lure of gain. And because of the lure of gain, truth gets compromised. In Balaam's case, the king of Moab wanted Balaam to place a curse on the nation of Israel so that he could conquer them. And he was going to pay Balaam a monetary sum in order to do that. But God prevented that. God prevented Balaam from being able to place a direct curse on Israel. And you say, well, all's good and done. God took care of that. Oh, no, 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 no. Because Balaam coveted the money so much that Balaam devised another way in which he could get the Moabites to infiltrate Israel without a direct curse. He introduced the Jewish men to the Moabite women. He introduced the nation of Israel to the beautiful women of the Gentile nation of Moab. And they began to seduce them. And so they intermarried. And those wives, guess what happened? Those wives who did not know the God of Israel and wanted nothing to do with the God of Israel began to draw the men of Israel away from the worship of the God of Israel. So the way of Balaam was to compromise the truth, was to compromise the law of God. The law of God had been clear. There was to be no intermingling. There was to be none of this embracing of the Gentile nations by way of intermixing. There was to be no ecumenism. There was to be no mix. It wasn't because there was some kind of ethnic hatred that God had placed and so we we just stay our own. No, it was the reality of a relationship that God had with His own. There was a picture there of the relationship of one of God's own with God Himself. And there was to be no ecumenism in there. But for the sake of personal pleasure and personal gain, the, and to gain Balaam, Balaam's gain, his own personal gain was his monetary sum, and for that he compromised the truth of God 
And Balaam knew about the character of God. He knew the truth about who God was in His very character. And he knew that once the people began to worship other gods, the gods of the world, that God would have to judge them. And so it was a back door in. And in fact, if you read back in Numbers, you know exactly what happened. 24,000 people of Israel died from a plague because of that. Even though the compromise was introduced by one man, each one was responsible for their own sin. And so the subtlety of Balaam's apostate teaching was to use what was known of God to lay a snare for sin before God's people. Balaam used what was known of God, that God was pure and holy and righteous and just, and if the people began to sin in a certain way, that God would judge them, which is exactly what the king of Moab wanted. And so Balaam used what was true and twisted it in order that the people would go and do what was wrong. It was no different than what Satan himself did with Eve in the garden when she she was deceived. Surely God doesn't want that from you, does He? The false teachers in Pergamum were the same. They would teach that the Christian life didn't need to be so separate from the world. You don't need to live a separate life. Go ahead and and do that. Go ahead and compromise. Loyalty to Christ, okay, on a personal level, but soften it when you're with the other people around you. Soften your walk with Christ. I mean, if you don't join with the non-Christian friends at the parties, if you don't join with your non-Christian friends in their debauchery and what they do, if you're willing or if you're unwilling to associate yourself with the unsaved in a way that they associate, then how are you going to reach them for Christ? That's the idea. Just compromise yourself. Compromise the truth. Okay. Because if you compromise on social lines... Won't that open up to you greater audience for the gospel? I mean, I hear that today. The rationalization of this reality of joining with the world and being like the world, because after all, if we can't be like them, how are we ever going to reach them? Churches are doing that today. Oh, don't don't preach, don't preach like you preach. Listen, you, you can people can only handle 15 minutes of preaching. Fifth, we only have a 15-minute attention span. After that, everybody's asleep anyway, so don't preach that. Don't do like that. In fact, don't mention sin, don't mention confrontation, don't mention judgment, and man, don't ever mention hell. Because, listen, we want to be able to bring our friends, our unchurched friends and our unchurched family, and if they come and hear that, they'll be gone. Don't ever mention another religion out there that's a false religion. Don't mention Islam or, or, or the Muslims or, or Jehovah's Witnesses or Catholicism. Don't mention any false religion because you do that, you're going to alienate people, and that's, that's just going to hurt people. How are you going to reach people like that? If you compromise, you'll have a greater audience. That was the teaching of Balaam. Compromise with the world. But let me tell you something, beloved. That only leads to greater compromise. 
You compromise on the small things, you will compromise on the large things. Notice what it says in verse 14. But I have a few things against you because there are some who hold the teaching of Bala, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to do what? To eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. It starts small and it gets larger. Listen, beloved, you cannot be living a compromised life and still be loyal to Christ. You cannot be living a compromised life and still be loyal to Christ. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Christianity demands a life of no compromise, no matter the cost. This is one of the things, this is one of the effects of apostasy, is this whole idea that the Christian life is a life to be without suffering. And so any way in which I might suffer, I need to avoid that. I need to go to every direction and do anything in order that I might not suffer at all. Any kind of suffering, no way. I'll even do away with God. I'll put away my brothers and sisters in Christ. I won't even be around them if it's going to maybe cause me to suffer at all. Christianity demands a life of no compromise, no matter the cost. Water down the truth. You compromise it. That is simply to proclaim something that's false. It's false. And while Balaam was long off the scene, there were those in the church like that. They're identified in verse 15. There are also some you have who are in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans. We don't know a whole lot about the Nicolaitans, but we know they were like those who compromised because that's exactly what Balaam did. They were teaching the same thing. So not only was there compromising people, but there were those in the church who taught that it was okay. It's okay to compromise. Don't worry about it. And the worst part was that not only was there some in the church who lived like that, but there were others who instead of rejecting the teaching and rejecting the teachers of that, they were compromising by tolerating and allowing it. They were allowing it. It's that that Christ hates. Christ hates compromise to the truth. He already said that, by the way. Go back to the church in Ephesus in verse 6. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Nicolaitans were like Balaam. They were compromisers. God hates that. Christ hates that. Christ hates the compromised life. Why? Because He wants full devotion. They haven't denied Christ, but many have compromised Christ. So you know what apostasy looks like in many churches today? It looks like compromise. The effects of apostasy has given us a compromised church. Many today in the church have married the world with the church. 
Many have embraced the world in their lives as Christians. The old adage goes, right? If Jesus Christ was to hold a trial today and hold you accountable for your Christianity, would you be found guilty? There were those who were saying, it's okay, you can reach the world when you're like the world. Go ahead, be like the world. That's what the church is saying today. That's what you hear many teachers saying in subtle and in overt ways. Just be like the world. Embrace the world. It's okay. You college kids are hearing that in the schools today. You're hearing all this nonsense about critical race theory and think of yourself by the color of your skin and all this other kind of nonsense. Listen, don't believe it. It's a lie. It's a lie. You speak the truth. You speak the truth in love, but you speak the truth. And if it costs you something, so be it. Don't compromise Christ. So what's Christ's counsel to the church? What's his counsel to us? Well, it's here in verse 16 and 17. He says, repent therefore or else I'm coming to you quickly and I'll make war against them with the sword of my mouth. So you as ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and, and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. I hope we hear this with our ears wide open. I hope we heed what Jesus is saying here. Because there is a sting in his words. The whole church needs to have a change of mind on the issue of compromise today. All of this notion of wokeism that's being promoted in the church is just another form of heretical compromise of the truth. That's all it is. Those who teach such things have to be challenged. Those who practice the co-mingling of the world as proper Christian living needs to be rebuked. We have to expose it, Jude says. And notice, if we won't take action, if we will do nothing in our own lives or in the life of the church, then Christ Himself will take action. I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. You say, how will it take place? When will it take place? John doesn't tell us. He just says quickly. I'm coming quickly. The emphasis is for all of us to know that it will happen if sinning believers refuse to repent from compromising with the world. That's the idea. If we refuse to look at our own hearts, examine our own hearts, and look at the areas of life whereby we may be compromising, and as a church, look at those areas whereby we may be compromising with the world and embracing the world then know that it is coming and it will come. Christ is not going to allow that kind of teaching, that kind of compromise to remain in His body. Why? Because it threatens the very testimony of the church for Christ. That's what we are. We're a testimony of Jesus Christ to the world. We're a testimony of who Christ is to the world. 
It threatens that testimony. Thinking about this recently, maybe this is the entire reason why COVID has come upon our world. Because there have been a whole host of churches that have rightfully had to close. Maybe all of this is so that you and I as a church, the church universal, would just wake up. It's the word of Christ that brings judgment. And it's upon that authority that men are dealt with. The word from his mouth. It's the word of Christ that brings judgment. I don't have anything to say to anybody other than what the Word of God says. You don't have anything to say to anybody other than what Jesus Christ says. This is the truth. If the whole world is heading one direction and you must follow Christ and it's heading the other direction, then you will go with Christ by yourself the other direction. Why? Because that's the truth. Everything else is mere fantasy and illusion. Or more properly said, it's delusion. We don't have an authority in and of ourselves. The only sword we have is the Word of God. Ephesians says it is the sword of the Spirit. And so John writes those words, He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's identical to what he said to the church in Ephesus. It's identical to what he says to the church in Smyrna. Each one of us has to pay attention to what Christ says. Why? Because it's for our protection and it's for exposure of that which is false. And the implication is that a believer who is devoted to Christ will be resistant to compromise. We will be resistant to compromise. Those who overcome will live separate lives unto Christ. For the overcomer, who knows? It might be that you're ostracized. It might be that there's potential poverty in a physical kind of way in our life. It might mean persecution at all kinds of different and varying levels. It might mean complete ostracization from the world. It might be even being put behind bars like we see our brothers and sisters in Canada even now having that happen to them. but it also means complete reliance on Christ for his sustaining. Christ says to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone. I will give him a new name. White white stone, that's, that's simply the idea of a promise of entrance. It's like... I don't know how many of you like golf. I like golf. You know I like golf. And, and when the guy wins the Masters tournament, he gets this green jacket. And we all say, well, that's the weird thing. Yeah, but it's, that's your ticket to entrance to the champion's dinner next time. Only those with that get to go. That's what this is. The white stone. It's the promise of entrance. It's, it's the, the, the entrance like the victor got at the Olympics for, for the special entry into the special victor's meal. Whatever the idea is, either way, the overcomer, the conqueror, enjoys a very special care of Christ. That's the idea. You stand with Christ, Christ will care with you, care for you, just as Christ cares for all he loves in a very, very special way. But listen, beloved, we, we don't want to be a compromising church. 
We don't want to compromise in big ways or small ways. We, we don't see everything, but we don't want to be a compromising church. That's an effect of apostasy in the church. We don't want that. But if we won't deal with the issues in our own lives, we will be that. And the Lord will deal with us with the sword out of His own mouth. We want our faith to be real, don't we? We want our faith to be seen by the world to point to Christ. We want to hold fast His name, just like Antipas did. We want to be the faithful one. We want to be the uncompromising church. What other effect does apostasy have on the church? We're going to look at that next time in Thyatira, beginning in verse 18. Thyatira's problem was tolerance. One effect of apostasy is compromise. Another effect of apostasy is tolerance. Tolerance. We'll look at that next time. Let's pray, would you? Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the example and the letter written to the church in Pergamum that we might learn. Lord, when we look at our own hearts, it's evident there are areas in which we sometimes subtly, other times covertly, and surely overtly we compromise. The road to glory is not an easy road to walk. And none of us could do it ourselves were it not for your mercy and grace, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that empowers us and the constant feeding and nourishing on your word, the truth. Everything else seems so confusing. It seems so wild. Seems as if everything is upside down, even now in our own day where evil is called good and good is called evil. Lord, these things are hard to navigate, difficult for us to know. But you know, you have given us your word. It is complete. We need nothing else. It has all we need for life and godliness. So I pray that we would hold to it hold fast to it, be like Antipas, faithful, even if it costs us our life. Lord, may we embrace suffering willingly for the sake of you, knowing that this world is not our home. And help us be a church that is not an apostate church, but that is always thinking and looking and rooting out and trying to protect from that. We know the enemy is a sly one. He seeks whom he might devour. Help us stand for the glory of your name, for the testimony and the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.